This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Chris Perkins. I'm Bill Slavisek. I'm James Wyatt. And if you haven't caught on by now, joining us to celebrate 15 years of Eberron in this bonus episode is the entire design team responsible for the original Eberron campaign setting. Gentlemen, I am honored and thrilled that you could join us. I cannot express strongly enough how much I appreciate each of you giving us your time for this recording. So happy to have you here. Thanks. You. <laughs> you are absolutely welcome. Uh, so what we have here, uh, we got a few questions, just a few that we're going to ask. And um, basically, we are going to explore uh, sort of what Ebron has meant to you and how you see it and you know where you see it going. Um, so I'm going to open up with a question. Feel free to jump in and uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, so my first question for you guys, what does Ebron mean to you as a setting in terms of themes and concepts? Anyone want to take a lead on that? I will. Okay. <laughs> um, so the thing that I always think of is the opening scene or sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark where you have player characters risking life and limb to retrieve some ancient relic from the ruins of Zendrick, and then they come out, and there's the Order of the Emerald Claw vastly outnumbering them, ready to take that artifact away from them. It's it's this pulp adventure feel with a twist to it. At least that's how my games usually go. Excellent. That's that's sort of the angle I typically have gone with when I run Eberron games, is, is that sort of pulp action feel. One of the first things that caught my attention about Eberron, also tied to Raiders of Lost Ark, is that feeling of globe trotting, where you're following the red line across the globe, Indiana's course, on to his next adventure, taking you to far-flung locations uh, that are real kind of set pieces and immersing you in those places. Because up to that point, the worlds of D&D often weren't didn't feel like worlds at all you were often constrained to a continent or even in a smaller area but everon encouraged you to go far afield yeah we did an episode on travel in everon where that's that was one of the the big selling points for me was the fact that i like in greyhawk you i felt confined to like a particular area and i love greyhawk don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but with everon i felt like i can go and explore all these different regions so thank you for that yeah <laughs> thank when you I for see an image in my head i think of like a backpack covered with like stickers from all over the world so. <laughs> right i've been to right. Joam, i've been to shadow marches i've been to kabara what haven't i been to ah the frost fell let's go there <laughs> my next character will have that on his backpack obviously i i agree with uh everything that's that's come up you know these are the sort of core things just throughout a different thing uh you know one of the things that's always been important to me is that idea of exploring magic as part of the world uh just because uh magic as performed by wizards and such, you know, is something that feels like this is a reliable tool. And so just that idea of saying, if we'd had arcane magic in the Renaissance, what would the world look like today? And so that's just something I've really enjoyed uh, sort of exploring as we've developed Eberron. Yeah, and the themes of what it's like to live in a society that is just survived a war and the parallels of course to the the cold war of our earth and also to the industrialization of the modern world and how societies cope with mass production how they cope with disenfranchised soldiers who have kind of lost their way at war's end all these sort of themes touch on things that we can relate to as humans and i think what makes eberron resonate with the fans is are these human themes that run through its stories. Yeah, and to me it was the uh, the period between the world wars. That's that's kind of what I focused on when I was doing the, the original writing and uh, and the idea of that's when the pulps were beginning to come to life and noir and, and we built that all together into the into the setting and and so all of that plays to my mind when the knolls are on top of the floating discs and flying through the, the city of Sh- uh, Sharn, that, that will always be the, 
the moment to me of Eberron. Now, what's interesting, I think a lot of people may not know about, or maybe you've talked about this before, Keith, is how the setting evolved from its roots, which was the tales of swords and sorcery, this idea of detective fiction, this sort of Chicago gangster vibe um, with trench coats and fedoras and how it kind of evolved to be this um, sort of greater D&D experience. Have you ever talked about that before? Uh, we've certainly talked about it on some level, uh, but I think it's a, a great thing to talk about while we're here, uh, because it is definitely the case that, uh, as I just said, you know, part of what was interesting to me was this exploring the development of magic. And in Thrilling Tales of Swords and Sorcery, uh, the initial pass I did on it, which again, I didn't remotely think sort of really had a chance. I just thought it was fun. Um, it was much more this idea of, oh, you know, the fighters packing a rod, and I mean a rod. Um, and one of the things that came up was this issue that it was interesting, but if you go that far, does it still feel like D&D? You know, if, if we no longer, you have to have swords to have swords and sorcery you know, to a certain level. Uh, but yeah, what other thoughts went through your mind uh, when we were in that period, Chris? Well, Bill and I were part of the selection process, uh, the people who had the privilege of reviewing the 11,000 plus submissions and picking up <laughs> the best one. And is, honest- is privilege in quotations there? <laughs> I shan't it, it say. It started out <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> it did until you hit about like the 3,000th one and you realize I've read this already 60 times this is gnome world ice world uh, duck world duck we had world. lots of those yes uh so uh, what stood out about it was its clarity as far as it knew exactly what it was aiming to do it knew the genre that it was trying to capture and it did that very well and i think when bill and i looked at it maybe not the first time we looked at it but certainly um as we were warming to it this sense that you could take anything that's in D&D and put this kind of pulp spin on it and create something interesting and fresh. Yeah, yeah. That was the, uh, the you know, that was in my pile. And that was one of the first ones that stood out to me, mostly because it was different. Um, it was too tongue in cheek, I thought, but it was, there was something there that kept drawing my mind back. And after I got through, the various, uh, you know, everybody wanted to do Game of Thrones because that was just the hot new book at the time. And we had like 12,000 versions of Ice World. Um, and I kept coming back to Keith's and said, you know, this isn't it, but the idea is here. Let's, let's try this one. And it, I think Chris and me came to that conclusion first. And then we had to convince the rest of the committee. So that actually really dovetails into the, the second question I had, which is what went through each of your heads when you, when you got your first taste of Eberron, either like during the setting search or even or after it. James, do you want to take a lead on that? Sure. Um, I think what Bill just said resonates with my experience a lot, too, that when I first saw it, I wasn't sure it was for me. Um, the, the tongue in cheek aspect of it, the, uh, I think Keith mentioned sort of the direct analog to everything instead of a gun, you've got a rod and there's something that works just like a telephone, but it's not a telephone, um, was a little off putting to me, but, uh, Bill and Chris managed to successfully convince me for sure that this was something we could run with. What was the what was the selling point from Chris or Bill for you? I think for me, it started to come together as we were uh, fleshing out the world and talking about um, the main continent and tapping into real world cultures to sort of help us ground each of the various nations. But also, I thought the art had a tremendous effect on me. Um, particularly when it got around to developing the Warforged, which were, as I recall, not part of Keith's original, at least not in name, they weren't uh, part of the original pitch. They were the Spellborn, exactly. But the idea, I really gravitated the idea of 
the, the soldier built for war who doesn't know what to do anymore now that the war is over. And uh, it was the first, it was the first sort of real human theme that struck me about the story about the agony of war and the, the consequences of war and a, we had done Dragonlance, of course, which was set during a war. We had seen Greyhawk evolve in various incarnations through wars that we never got to uh, really get a sense of what they were all about. But the last war really kind of, because it was such a, um, a World War feel to it, I felt sort of like Band of Brothers. There's no end to the number of stories you can tell in that kind of milieu. And so the combination of the art and the the humanizing aspects of some of the stuff we were creating really sort of won me over. Yeah. So I'm sorry. So for me, the, uh, um, the thing about it was before we had the art, before we had the 100 page Bible, we had the one pager and then Keith came out to work with us to do the 10 pager. And, uh, I began to, to, to see, as I said, I was looking for something we could develop and, and it was really coming together for me that we could keep everything that made a game D and D because this wasn't asking us to throw anything away, but everything was additive. And, and that really was exciting for me. Yeah. I just wanted to echo what Chris said about the Warforged, because that's also, again, one of my favorite elements. And I just feel they capture so much of what is Eberron in the sense of you have the fallout of the war, but you also have that concept of this is a race that sort of represents the industrialization of magic and such. And as he said, that's the thing. They weren't in even up through the 10 page because I was like, oh, I didn't want to add new races. And one of the things I remember in developing the 100-pager was uh, you all saying, what are races that actually really captured this theme? You know, what are races that feel magical? And even then, as, as Chris said, you know, they were originally the Spellborn, and it was the idea that just one nation had them and sort of handcrafted them. And that sort of, you know, and then they, we developed the whole idea of the dragon marked houses of this greater industrialization. And to me, that's, that's where you see this whole process that the whole world went through of this starting with, you know, sort of very broad ideas. But then as we went further and further along, sort of taking a thing and saying, how do we make it better? How do we make it more intriguing? Uh, and that was really exciting. James, you had uh, something you want to add? Yeah. I'm thinking about the war. Um, I, I remember a point when we were discussing what to name the setting that we actually talked about calling it Warforged, um, because that is such a, a crucial part of it. And it occurred to me as Chris was talking about Dragonlance and Greyhawk, the way we usually see war in a fantasy game is is in very clear-cut good versus evil, right? The evil dragon armies are trying to take over the world, or I use the evil. It's right in his name. Um, where the, the war in Eberron was just a human war and with all the the bad reasons and bad decisions and and horrors of that there's no glorification of war in the last war um, and i think that's something really powerful about it we also tried to make each of the nations you know both likable and hateable so that there was no good guy there was no bad guy Mm. Yeah, I thought in that I thought in that the, you guys really pulled it off. Um, yeah. It it would have been easy to say, oh, the the Carnathi or the the villains because they're of this type and they have undead armies. But when you get right down to it and you see the reasons why they did what they did, you sympathize with them, and that's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Keith. Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, and part of what I like about that is this basic point that no one won the war. That, you know, it ends because of the morning, uh, which in and of itself sort of touches on the Cold War, you know, the fear of mass destruction that we live in. And so it is that in that sense of 
uh, you know, none of the nations are entirely good or evil. None of the nations, you know, are winners. The only one that, that, uh, had a decisive end was, uh, Terry because it lost. So I think one of the other interesting things about a war that lasted a hundred years is that we are, we're in a setting where races have very long lives or some of them do at least which is very different from a human experience. And so there are people who have had to endure this war for far longer than some others, which I find fascinating because I think there's a lot more stories and a lot more pain, you know, and a lot more, uh, I guess, experience that like, like players, for example, could draw from or, or, or create for their characters. And you've got a whole generation of humans who this is their first moment of peace. Right. And, and we have talked about this before, but I do feel that was the thing that in the very beginning, uh, a lot of even authors for the setting didn't quite get that, that it was this point that we are only two years away from the end of, of you know, a century of war. And as the setting continued on, you know, more and more people picked up on that and embraced it, uh, but I think there was a certain level at the beginning where people were just like, yeah, now we're back and everything's great. And we're like, well, no, things wouldn't be quite so great that easily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's still tension. There's still unresolved conflict and it still lingers. So. Yeah. One of the interesting things too, is as we're fleshing out the world and just making it a bigger place and finding homes for some of the things that are part of D&D canon or, or sort of iconic D&D monsters, how we had to sort of reach back into history and uh, really go well past uh, the, the 100 years when the war started and start talking about things like demons in the world and dragons in the world. And, you know, if dragons have been around forever. What is, you know, the draconic prophecy comes out of this, you know, are, are dragons these these game masters who kind of manipulate other races into doing their think their desires for them, or are they simply monsters? We're not really sure. There was a huge giant empire down in Zendrick. All these things were sort of created to help fill the space and to make the history feel deep and robust. Nice. And that was an interesting exercise, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And also to give you different places and different environments to play in. Yeah, like Zendrick's the traditional lost continent, right? And then you have the Far East trope and, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I want to touch on a little bit about your experience. When when you all came together, there, like I'm assuming there was a moment where you first got together and you all sat in a room and you're looking at each other and you're like, all right, we're going to do this. What was that like for you? Well, one of the things I'll say for me, because, you know, for me, this was the experience of I was just a random, you know, uh, hopeful freelance writer uh, used to write in my basement. And here I am coming to Wizards of the Coast, you know, home of D&D. So that was first off very exciting and intimidating. Uh, also, it was kind of funny because we get there and uh, James says, well, do you have a sister in Ithaca, New York? And I was like, well, yes. And it turns out that he played D&D with my sister. Um, <laughs> and so it was just, and we, we did not realize this like until we were in the room together and we're like, oh, you know, wow. Um, but for me, it was just this really exciting uh, moment. First off, you know, to again, be at the heart of D&D. Uh, but also just because it is the nature of something like this, especially an entire world, that one person's ideas, you know, just sitting in isolation are never going to be as compelling as when you get a group of creative people sort of bouncing and refining and, and seeing things from different perspectives. And there's so many things, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, uh, but just so many little things that, you know, oh, I thought that was a neat idea. You know, it's like the Warforged are a perfect example where, oh, I thought this idea of, of them being sort of hand-created was, was interesting, but moving that to the greater sort of industrialized concept adds this whole other level to them. Uh, and, and it was just this, you know, I was there for a week initially, and it was just nonstop. It was just really exciting. Uh, every day we were coming up with amazing things. 
right. And support and supporting it with like an internal logic. And also just that I keep going back to this, but tapping into something on a, that works on a deeper level. Like when you have war fortune, they're mass produced as opposed to golems, which are like individually crafted and there's, there, it's dehumanizing and impersonal. And so that says a lot about the race. Like you're just, you're just unit 2694 off of the Kenneth assembly line in Metro. It's just like, you're nothing but a, a cog in a greater machine. Deal with that. Wow. Well, so as far as our experiences go in those early days, we kind of had different roles. So James was, correct me if I'm wrong, a game designer on the D&D team, as I remember it. So he was, he was going to be creatively steeped in this for months. I was a creative director in charge of the campaign settings that supported the core D&D game. So my job was really more behind the scenes, tactical, lining up freelancers, lining up concept artists, working on schedules and helping keep everything on track and then helping to pull the book together at the end. Bill had the strategy of the line in mind. He was, he was, um, he had to internalize where Eberron was going to be two years from now, five years from now, what support products were going to buttress it. How is what we were doing going to dovetail with the novel? So he was, whereas James and I were on tactical level, Bill was up on the strategic level as well as guiding the tactical execution of the books. Yeah. I kind of served as the, um, I pulled it all together, I guess you could say, um, uh, keeping everything on track with everybody because we were throwing so many ideas around. It was like lightning in a bottle and uh, I was trying to catch it and put in, put it in the book. <laughs> lightning in a bottle is a, is a good way of uh, describing that. I remember that, that week as being just constant ideas flying around the room, definitely a highlight of my career. And I, I had only been at wizards two or three years at the time. So boy, I learned a lot. Wow, I can imagine that that must have been like fast and furious, just sitting in that room and cranking ideas out and bouncing them around. So many creative people, brilliant people. It was awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. And 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 as Chris said, we also had we had three great concept artists working with us. Uh, and it, they were they weren't in the room all the time, but we had sessions with them. And they would just come back and, and churn out sketch after sketch after sketch, which helped us in turn uh, redevelop what we were thinking about and, and giving it uh, uh, even newer life. And it was, it was exciting. It was very exciting. I mean, I don't even know, looking back to the Warforged, uh, you know, one of the ideas that, that is sort of part of them now is this idea that they have this semi-organic matter, uh, you know, these sort of root-like tendrils that sort of form their muscles. I don't know, uh, maybe one of you guys remembers that that was a, a direction given to Steve Prescott, or if that was just sort of something he came up with in the design and, and it went from there. Yeah, I think that was Steve. Um, we, we, uh, we played off their art a lot. Um, they listened very carefully. They, they, they understood what we were asking for, and then they made it even better. I think Steve Prescott's art is, to me, what defines my visual impression of Eberron, because that's that's what was so prevalent at the time. You know, that year of promotion, and then the, when the first campaign book came out, that was what left an impression on me. Yeah, one of the things I did to help sell the concept throughout the uh, the company was I put together a a slideshow or a, a movie trailer using all of their art and we put music to it and uh, yeah. that kind of helped us get the rest of the company to understand what we were doing and to get excited about it. You also did a version of that for Gen Con. Uh, that's true. Yes, I did. Oh, do you, do you still have that? <laughs> I do not, but it's probably on my computer somewhere in Wizards of the Coast storage units. <laughs> <laughs> Locked in the vaults. All right. <laughs> Well, that sounds uh, th that sounds absolutely amazing and exciting. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like in that week, and and even continuing on afterward. Oh, it so, took longer than a week. But yeah, that so was, that was the beginning. 
so I guess I guess that that leads to the next question is what was I mean you talked already about some of the design experience as you moved through it to the finished product but like did you did any of you have any particularly favorite moments where it was like oh like things that just stuck with you that like that was awesome I remember designing the crests for the dragon marked houses and uh, working with the artists to actually flesh those out because all their crests were based on monsters of a particular type. Um, that was just a fun experience for me. Uh, writing those art orders and then seeing what the artist came up with, it's often one of the most um, gratifying experiences just at Wizards of the Coast in general is seeing words turned into art by some gifted soul. Uh, that was cool because... Um, they, those crests actually helped me understand the identities of the houses even more. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that I, I th- there's so many ideas that probably, uh, came that you guys came up with that. I'm sure that when you went to that artist and said, we want to, we want something that's like this and has this feel or has this representation yeah, like like you said, Chris, coming back with that and, and, and yeah. seeing that it actualized, that had to be yeah. like so gratifying, so rewarding. The other thing that was incredibly gratifying was Wayne Reynolds. Yes, um, yes. Uh, getting to work with him and have him develop some a, a, a truly extraordinary approach to covers. James? Um I had a moment at some point early on in development where the scene of a story took took form in my head, and that scene eventually, years later, ended up as part of my uh, my first ever on novel um, in the Claws of the Tiger. But it was when we were talking about the silver flame and the cathedral, and this idea formed in my head of somebody who doesn't believe it at all and is talking to this kid who's at the head of the church and and just bah humbug. But but then is is transformed by realizing that this this kid is authentic, knows what she's saying. Keith, I I think that ties to me to one of the things I really you know enjoyed about the setting uh, too, as someone who's you know always been fascinated by mythology and folklore, was just sort of taking a very different approach to uh, religion and deities than in, say, Forgotten Realms, you know, which at the time was the, the dominant thing. Uh, and just that idea that in Eberron we're, we're sort of exploring questions of faith in a way that often doesn't come out in a, a world where, you know, the gods come down and beat each other up. Um, and there's just a lot of ways that that's evolved, you know, that's come out over different adventures in the years uh, that I've just really enjoyed. I, I remember when we, we came up with that concept uh, or at least the discussions about it and uh, the fact that we wanted a world where faith was just that it wasn't, it wasn't proven by the God coming down every 10 minutes to talk to you. Um, and, and that, that made for, we still got to have clerics. We still got to have uh, divine magic, but we di- did it in a more, uh, realistic way, I guess, uh, more like the world that we, we live in. Well, I think to me, it comes back to that of, of, we talked about before about different things feeling relatable. And I think it's exactly that point of this is, you know, we're in a world where, uh, you can't just call up your God with a divination spell. Uh, but shifting to just sort of moments from the experience, you know, to me, the, the big one, uh, just for the, the five second, oh my goodness moments is, is the Talenta halflings, uh, just because that was a perfect example of we're sitting around the table and everyone's saying, well, we've got these nomadic halflings. That's fun. That's interesting. But I don't know what makes it a little more interesting. You know, what are they writing? And at, to this point, I still don't know that we all recall who was the person who actually said it. Uh, but it was someone, you know, says, dinosaurs and everyone's just like halfling on raptor you know like uh and it was just this oh that's 10 times better than than it was before and just those sorts of moments where just something hit the table and everyone's like yes that is good awesome wow 
I remember we were going through the monster manual and we got to the dinosaurs and said, all right, where do we put them? And uh, <laughs> halflings. That, that Under halflings. And, and especially because, you know, it's a pulpish sort of setting and dinosaurs, you know, are the lost world, you know, sort of fits. And so it was really cool sort of hitting a let's give them this actually interesting central sort of role. Yeah, but it's also part of the theme of Corvair, which is the people there are quite industrious and smart. And if they see something like that, they're going to use it. Very nice. So uh, it, also, it also allows for just the, you can just imagine what the dinosaur trade is like yeah. in the world. And I'll also, you know, just as long as we're again talking about things that excited us as we we're going, you know, we've talked about how the Warforged, you know, evolved uh, very dramatically. Uh, another part of the setting that was really completely evolved over that phase uh, was the elves. And I really love the elves of Eberron. And, you know, part of it is this exploration of what does it mean to have a culture where people can live for, you know, a thousand years. And so they have this, this culture very mired in their ancestors and tradition. But that was entirely something that, that we sort of developed during that initial period and just saying, how do we make these more compelling and interesting uh, than what we have? Yeah, they're super spooky, everyone else. <laughs> Another thing that came out of our discussions and out of the concept art were the elemental airships or elemental vehicles. Uh, we got some really good images of those, and they sort of became, they and the lightning rail became the, you know, the way you get around if you've got some money. So how did that come about? Was that something that you all requested, or was it something that the designers just, that the artists, I should say, uh, just came up with on their own as like, hey, we think this might be a thing? No, that that came out of the four of us talking. Um, and, and, you know, what do we need for the pulps? What do we need for noir? Uh, what do we need to, to hit this, this period of the world's history? Uh, and, you know, how do we use magic and elementals uh, in industry? And it all came together like that. And then we asked them and then they drew these cool ships that were even better than what we asked for. That's beautiful. Yeah. I don't think any of us envisioned like this elemental ring going around a ship until Prescott did one of his, his sketches. And then it's like, okay, you got me. <laughs> I, I think we asked for like a, a elemental strap to the hood or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> if there was a, if there was a single feature of Eberron that you wish you could go back and, you know, or, and have the opportunity to expand on, what might that be for you? Bill, do you have anything? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've been looking at the book. I was looking at the book recently when Keith asked me to do an interview on his site a couple of months ago. And, uh, A, I think the original book still holds up really well. And, um, I think if I had to do it again, I would have added another 20 pages to talk about the 10 things you really need to know about Eberron. Um, uh, I kind of squeezed that in at the last minute and we, we that's the room we had for it. Uh, and I think it's one of the, you know, the best starting points for the book. And uh, in hindsight, I, I could go another 10 pages talking about that stuff. Wow. In a, in a similar vein, um, time, time and space not being objects, I would have had probably more starter adventures to give even more flavors of the setting because there's a lot going on. Yeah, I think uh, I, I remember that as a as a GM uh, running Eberron for the first time, where you know we had the the adventure in the back of the book, we had Shadows of the Last War, we had that whole arc and so on. Um, but but you're right, it, it only touched on certain pieces, and there's so much remaining in the world to even explore. And that's that's actually what we do with this podcast is we're like, wow, you know, t let's talk about the Talenta Plains and you know what what can happen there, what kind of adventures and stories can we tell there. I think in hindsight, if I had to do it again, uh, because the adventures were kind of, uh, we were so concentrated on the campaign setting, the adventures, they didn't get short shrift, but they were the next thing to do. So 
but I would have planned them a little better. And I think we probably should have done like around the world in 80 days type of an adventure. Oh, that would have been awesome. To give you the a broader sense of the world, like you were just talking about. Yeah. Keith, you had uh, some thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, first off, I, I completely agree. I think that is something that would have uh, would have been wonderful. Uh, I also uh, really agree with uh, Bill's point. I think that uh, the sort of 10 things you should know uh, is was this really strong opener. And I will say when I did last year, the Wayfinder's Guide, uh, to Eberron, really the first chapter of that is basically taking that 10 things you need to know and just giving it a page per topic. Um, and so, yeah, I just completely agree. I think, uh, hitting those core concepts and, and just sort of explaining them in enough detail that people can really engage with them, uh, is a great thing. James, was there anything for you that, that stood out? Um, no, so it's funny. I don't disagree with anything that anybody has said. And yet there's also a part of me that is like, maybe we made it too big. (laughs) (laughs) It's this vast setting. And the fact that we had to do uh, a number of supplemental books to cover other continents. Uh, Sometimes I guess my, my understanding of what makes a good campaign setting has changed over the years. And and a tighter focus can sometimes be good. I get why we didn't do it. And I guess ultimately I'm glad we didn't. <laughs> well, but, um, so I don't know what the heck I'm saying. <laughs> well, but James, I, I agree with you. I, th- I think we did go too big, but we took baby steps. And the first baby step was getting away from all the history and telling you what was going on in the world today. I think yeah, that was sure. our, that was our biggest uh, breakthrough for designing a new campaign setting for D and D. Well, and c- compared to something like the Forgotten Realms, um, the the vast scope of Eberron is still much more tightly focused in terms of theme and flavor. Um, not to say anything against Forgotten Realms, but the way that it was developed over the years, it it does have sort of a kitchen sink um, aspect to it. I love our corporate overlords. Don't <laughs> smite me. <laughs> um, but but everyone has that coherency to it—a a story that unites the whole world uh, in its history and its present. But the other thing about Eberron, too, that that going along the, those lines—not only is it cohesive, it was the first setting that we actually developed fully with the rules set in mind. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, Keith. Uh, I just wanted to add, I mean, one thing I think that's really interesting about that point uh, that really struck me is the fact that the world's actually smaller than what I originally wrote. Uh, That when I submitted the 100-page document, there were probably twice as many nations, in part because I was looking at it as, well, look at the actual world. You know, there's tons of things. And part of that process uh, in that, you know, initial drive was really sort of paring that down and saying, well, which of these are the most compelling? Which of these are really interesting? We, we and, combined a bunch of stuff too, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I remember like Fairhaven, for example, I think was a nation, you know, and that came on there. And there's a bunch of things like that. And And to me, the point is, I agree with James. I mean, even as is, part of it is here we are 15 later years later and you know we still haven't delved into say droam as much as i would like and so all i'm saying is you know thank goodness uh you know it is that sense of as designers it's easy to think bigger is better but since you only have so much time and space to actually develop things uh you know you got to make sure you don't go so big that it all just ends up being vague and unknown Right. But you also, in hindsight being 2020, you never know what's going to take either. Absolutely. So, you know, you want to put, you want to put your best feet forward. I don't think we put anything in the book that we weren't proud of, which is, oh, yeah. you know, a compliment to everybody involved. Um, and honestly, in 15 years, philosophies change. If we were to do it today, I'm sure we'd make different decisions just based on the fact that there's so, there's much more competition for people's time and lots of other ways people can spend their money and not a lot of time to create your own stuff anymore. So those things may have weighed on us a little bit more 
than they did back in 2000. Yeah. You know, I, I do like how much that they're like, like there's so much content in Eberron. And I think that's really cool because it allows you to, to tell a number of different types of stories. You're not sort of pigeonholed into a certain genre or anything. If you want to do cosmic horror, you've got the Delk here and Cult of the Dragon below. If you want to do pulp action, uh, you know, ex- exploration, you've got Zendrick and other places. Uh, and if you want to do noir, you got Sharn City of Towers. If you want to do, you know, martial arts and mystics, you've got Sarlona. And, Murder uh, on the Orient Express, you got the lightning rail. You got the lightning rail, exactly. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that that's actually a benefit. Now, the ironic thing, though, is that when you ask, if you asked, I'd like to say, if you asked 13 uh, DMs what it is they like about Eberron, you'll get 12 different answers. So <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I got that. Yep, yep, we got it. <laughs> He's talking about the moons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, I thought he was talking about the dragon marks. That too. Yeah, or the planes. One of those. Or the yeah. planes. So. You see how we put those all together, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a thing for the baker's dozen. That's right. Yeah, I do like that, of course, I, it was a while in when those were coming out. Because, you know, I just like the numerology uh, and such before someone pointed out that it was a baker's dozen. And we were like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I never thought that. Fair really? Enough. No. Okay. But his name is I don't Baker. remember thinking that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we had a rich Baker too. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And people, uh, when the fantasy setting search first came out, there were was a, a conspiracy theory uh, that it was all nepotism because clearly I was related to Rich Baker. You know that we were really tight on the rules of that submission process. Everything we reviewed was blind. I had no names on them. I didn't know who wrote them. Uh, I didn't know which ones were were from inside the company, which ones were were from outside the company. Um, They 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 sank or swam on their own merit. Nice, very nice. So. uh, what are some of the things like what are some of your favorite things that you've seen um evolve with Eberron over the years? Like I mean, we've had fifteen years of Eberron, Eberron products and campaigns and you know, like all sorts of source material, articles, etc. What are what are some of the things that have evolved since that first Eberron campaign setting book came out? So to me, you know, the RPG stuff is great, but I love to see when it goes beyond our hobby and so when the computer game came out when the novels the great line of novels that james worked on and and keith started to come out um the comic books to me that makes the setting the world come even more alive because it's it goes beyond just the hobby Mm -hmm. yeah i'm still holding out for a tv series or a movie but i don't know (laughs) i don't know if that'll happen we even got a cd of music Oh yeah. Ah uh, yes. Yes, that was that was my my little side project while you guys were frantically writing Sharn City of Towers. I was working with David Davidson on a musical score, my first uh, real delve into music producing. And you know, we still use that music to this day. It's it's on our Wizards of the Coast uh, telephone lines, our hold music. Yeah. And and when you first your first draft of it was an actual musical, wasn't it? Sharn the musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still hear it on uh, Dragon Talk. Yeah, in fact, some of the. And I have to say, David Davidson was a joy to work with. He he took sort of my touchy feely notes about what I wanted all the different tracks to sound like and made them a real thing. Um, in in a relatively short amount of time. I think uh, I'm not the only one who would love to have more music for Ebron. So if if that's uh, if that's on the table. It's quite a collector's item now, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's hard to find. I still have my CD. Someone mm-hmm. asked me about that on Twitter. They were they, they said, oh, I found my Sharn book, but I don't have the CD. Anywhere can get it. And I'm like, eBay? <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> Good luck. Wow. Sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Lost in some manifest zone somewhere. Uh, 
So how has your work with Eberron influenced your design work since then? Like, is there anything that you took with you after that experience and like, you know, that, that changed the way you approach things? Certainly one of the things that Bill pointed out earlier, and that is, you know, focus what's happening on the present so that it's relevant to what's going to happen in your campaign was a evolutionary step forward. And it's, it's still a, a thing that I bear in mind whenever I see stuff coming from the freelance, from a freelancer or something like that. And there's eight pages of history and then one page of where you are now. It's like, <laughs> no, dude, you got this backwards. Yeah, I think you're, you're right about that. Like the starting point is what's important, right? Yeah. yeah. I think for me also alignment uh, is something that that with Eberron, we were doing a more conscious, you know, orcs and goblins aren't evil, you know, sort of really exploring intelligent creatures can choose their own path. And I feel that's something that certainly for me, but also just more broadly uh, has been embraced within the hobby that you don't see quite as much, if you will, you know, genetic evil. Uh, as as you often did in the past, Bill James. Yeah, you know, uh, going back to the, the the ten things and getting right to the the heart of what you need to know. Uh, I even use that now in my storytelling on computer games. Is you know, I'm telling my other writers, get right to the point. We don't have time to dilly dally, and the fan needs to the the player needs to know what's going on right away. So. Uh, I think that that really started to gel for me when we were working on Eberron. Um, for me, I, it's funny because making a new world for D&D is this huge undertaking that happens once in a lifetime, almost. Um, and now I'm working on the magic world building team where we do it three times a year. So it's a very different world and a very different process. But I think without having done Eberron, Doing that now would be a lot harder for me. I think I, I have learned a lot, and it, particularly uh, the things that, that Bill was saying, getting to the point right up front, that, that's kind of often all you get a chance to do for a magic world. So getting that right is important. <laughs> that's not entirely fair to magic worlds. Yeah, especially if you're doing three a year, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's great stuff. Um, so... Can you just tell us about a Eberron game you played or ran? Like any any particular campaigns that really stuck out to you? I sort of already did. Um, the the shoot the PCs emerging from the ruins of Zendrick to find the Order of the Emerald Claw. There, that's that was uh, the the first Eberron campaign that I ran, the, and the main one um, was built around an agent of the Emerald Claw who was acting as a patron to the the player characters sending them into Zendrick and eventually turned on them. It was awesome. I remember an adventure that ran entirely in Sharn, which is basically a, a beautiful microcosm of the entire setting. Uh, you can you can pretty much base a whole campaign there if you really wanted to. And it just started with a body falling out of the sky and landing at the character's <laughs> feet. <laughs> nice. Yeah, really, Sharn... That, I mean, that could have been a campaign setting unto itself. Yeah, but what I love about it is the strata of the city, and you can just sort of keep going down and down and down and down and discover a new layer of intrigue as you go. So as the campaign evolved, they just kept finding themselves going deeper, darker, darker, and the villains becoming more um, uh, inhuman, if not physically, then, you know, emotionally. That's a wonderful metaphor. Yes. Yeah, for me... Uh... I remember the, the original playtest that I was doing while we were working on it. And I think Chris and James were both in that game. And um, uh, so many of the images that we came up with came out of the play around the table. Uh, for example, the whole, the whole scene with the, the gnolls on the flying discs chasing the airship. Uh, we, we played that because I had these little discs from my Star Wars figures, the clear discs. That's right. I forgot about that. So I used those as the the base for the knolls, and history was born. <laughs> yeah, nice. So that's the origin of the source lead. Awesome, very cool. Keith, I know you run stuff all the time. You're always talking about them. Uh, but is there? <laughs> do you have a favorite? 
For me, one of the things is I love doing one shots at conventions of I often am trying to say, well, what is a story that feels like this is absolutely uniquely, you know, Eberron uh, that you wouldn't play, you know, sort of normally at home. And so a lot of times when I've done convention one shots, like one adventure, I did it as uh, all the players were Dakani goblins that it was like a goblin strike force and they they ended up fighting you know Valinor elves who've been corrupted by the Dalkir um another time i did it as the sort of carnathy a team where you know one of the players is a zombie and one of them's a necromancer and you know one of them was a flame skull actually um but it was like as i said the undead a team and uh, i just love doing that sort of thing of just saying well what's something you don't expect but that does fit within the world yeah one game i've always wanted to run is the um the war the survivors of the Warforged regiment who get back together like they get together once a year at some random place and so everybody plays a Warforged, but they all had sort of different roles in their their regiment and on this particular occasion when they get back together something bad happens and and I think that ties to some uh, something that we sort of brought up earlier, but you know didn't really nail on, is the impact of the war, not just on the world itself, but there's so many interesting hooks that it offers you in creating interesting player characters, and and to me that idea of the war only ended two years ago. If you're, for example, a fighter, did you fight? And if so, who for? Uh, and, and you know, the idea of the adventuring group who fought together or even the group who fought on opposite sides. I mean, there's so many interesting sort of stories you can explore in that. Of everything we created for Eberron, and I think it's all wonderful and fantastic and amazing. And I'm very proud of the work that we all did on this. Uh, but the Warforged always sticks out to me as the thing I remember most, the thing I go back to, I've got the whole line of the miniatures we made up on my shelf. Um, and they, they encapsulate the setting in all the ways we've talked about. And, uh, uh, and I think they, they can even go beyond into other settings if people want to use them there. So uh, I've, I've got one more question that uh, isn't on the list and, and uh, I'm not asking for any secrets or anything like that or any, you know, but um, James, you're, uh, you're on loan from the magic team, correct? Working on the next hardcover. Is that, do I have that correct? Yes. Although uh, it's, it's more of a sharing arrangement than a loan. I'm working on a bunch of things at once. One of which is the Around book, which we haven't officially announced yet. I thought they did. They unofficially announced we had it. A, we had a sneaky little announcement at the end of the descent, so people know about it, but we haven't done what's what we consider to be the formal, hey, this is the big release announcement with the press release. Ah. So we sort of teased it out. So it's it's a it's a not secret secret. Okay. All right. Well we'll we'll stop talking about it there. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea you were working on a new edition. <laughs> I'll just I'll just cut that whole part out. I'm shocked, deeply shocked. <laughs> As the uh, designated Wizards of the Coast representative on this topic, uh, I can say uh, for this podcast that this this wouldn't have happened had had Keith not uh, decided to release um, the PDF and the the warm reception that it received um, gave us gave us confidence that uh, the time was right to do something to build on that. Yeah, the uh, I think the Eberron community of fans, um, the excitement that came out when that product released was, it was amazing. It was amazing to see it. It was amazing to be part of it. And, um, and I'm glad to know that that's what, you know, sort of served as a catalyst for Wizards of the Coast. So, yeah, uh, uh, back in the day, we used to announce things pretty far in advance. So people had a lot of time to sort of ruminate on them now. We've taken a more surprise and delight approach, um, partly because of the fact that there's so many other offerings out there that if you announce something too soon, it can quickly disappear into the maelstrom, as mm. we all know. Right. Um, but if you if you announce things fairly late, uh, 
people stay excited at the time by the time the product is released. We found that to be very successful for us in this day and age. So no more year-long promotional campaigns <laughs> for settings. <laughs> well, back in the day, we had to serve the masters of the book trade. So. Yes. Uh, right. right. Yes. Right. This is true. I will add that it's been great working with Keith on the book. Uh, he and I are exchanging a lot of emails, and it's it's good to be have at least part of the band back together. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is sort of what you know? Any emotional feelings related to that? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with James. It's it's wonderful to to sort of again. I mean, it's been 15 years, and it's wonderful to be uh, working together again. It's just I love the creative energy. Uh, of it, and I hope that I'm not too much of a pain to work with. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, that's all the questions I have for you all. Is there any additional uh, stories or sentiments or just thoughts related to Eberron and your experiences with it, or your or your feelings about it? I still keep the three the three winning not the three winning but the, the three finalists the entries in my file cabinet and pull those out periodically just to sort of remember the, the experience of how we got down to those three. And Bill can relate to it. I can certainly relate to it. The, the thick black binders of proposals that we went through. That were wheeled in on trolleys <laughs> to our offices. <laughs> I had to take them with me in a suitcase out to the East Coast because it overlapped with my vacation. It was it was torture. I think was it Liz or Mary Elizabeth heard her back carrying them? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was Liz. Um, anywho, I I, I, break, I break them out because they really are in and of themselves remarkable pieces of work from three remarkable um, designers who were untested and sort of unproven, um, but clearly had the the spark of genius. And, um, I'm, I, I, in the end, I'm grateful to have had that torturous, wonderful experience. Um, because I think Eberron has done, uh, has advanced, it advanced, uh, what campaign, what it meant, what a campaign setting could be. It, it kind of took campaign settings to a new level at the time. It broke some new ground in terms of its layout, in terms of the presentation, in terms of the amount of detail and the way it was written, the way it was presented. Uh, and a lot of the things that we did back then, we still do today because they have held up over time as being a good way to do things. Excellent. Wow. Uh, any other closing thoughts? No. All right. So where can our listeners find each of you on social media? I, Chris Perkins, am on social media in the form of Twitter at ChrisPerkinsDND. James? I am also on Twitter as Aquella James. That's A-Q-U-E-L-A James. That's the name of the campaign setting I created in uh, high school. Also at Aquella.com. I was going to say, yeah, you had a website with that domain, if I recall. Right. Yep. Because I am that much of a nerd. <laughs> Bill? Uh, yes, I'm also on Twitter. I think it's just Bill Slavisek. Uh, search my name and you'll find me. Um, and uh, I've also got a website that has all of my vast credits that if anybody cares to look at them. <laughs> I will look at that. Yes. <laughs> It is kind of ridiculous we've been in this uh, industry for so long that those are almost unreadable. <laughs> <laughs> I got pictures. There's little pictures of all the covers. Right. Okay, great. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, nice little portfolio. That's great. And Keith, I think everybody knows your uh, Twitter handle. Hell cow, Keith. Right. And uh, yeah, and you can also follow Manifest Zone at, at Manifest Zone on Twitter. So, uh yeah, thank you, gentlemen, so much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time for this again. And uh, this is I think this is going to mean a lot for uh, the fans. And everybody's excited to see where everyone's going to go next. So thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you for giving us this gift of a wonderful setting and a wonderful world that you've created together. Um, and, uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing what comes next for it. So... 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. And uh, and I'm also looking forward to it, seeing what happens next since, you know, uh, these guys are doing the new one without me and I wish them a lot of luck and I can't wait to see it. Aww. Thanks, Bill. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for listening and be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode and find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages and whatever option you prefer. Let us know what you think of the show. Join us next time as we venture to Rook and Drawl and traverse treacherous paths in Dargoon. And until next time, keep exploring.